Don't worry about the next six months from now. Don't, don't worry about a year from now. Don't even worry about three months from now. Worry about next month. Can you keep the lights on for one more month? So wow. when I stopped thinking about six months from now, a year from now, and just thought, okay, am I good for the next month? That was when everything changed for me, like mindset-wise. Welcome to The Irresistible Factor, a podcast where I talk to founders and investors and retailers about what it takes to launch successful brands, from developing a compelling proposition and brand identity, to raising capital, to getting distribution, and more. My name is Christy Bridges, and I'm a marketing expert with tons of experience and a true love for all things health and wellness. Welcome to today's episode of The Irresistible Factor. I am really, really excited today because I have a very cool founder from a very cool brand. So I want to welcome Molly Fedek, who is the founder of Buzzkill Wines. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Christy. Thanks for having me. Super excited to do this. Yeah, I am so excited for you to talk about this brand and all of the things that you've done in your pivots. So why don't we start with you talking about how you founded Buzzkill and what you were doing before that that led you to Buzzkill. Yeah, absolutely. So I came up with the idea for Buzzkill, I think in August of 2020, I started thinking about it. Obviously, that was mid-pandemic. So I was living in Lake Tahoe at the time, and I was working remotely for Hinge, where I was the creative director. And At that point, I had moved out of New York City where I had lived for six years. And I was just sort of thinking, I think a lot of people did like a lot of inventory taking during the pandemic. And I was thinking a lot about the fact that my entire life in New York, my whole social life, alcohol seemed to be present in, you know, everywhere I went. So whether it was like a date or a company happy hour or whatever it was, it was just like alcohol seemed to be the center of the you know, the equation. So when I left um, New York and it was, you know, mid pandemic and bars weren't open, nothing was open. I really wasn't drinking very much. And I realized that I felt physically fantastic. And my mental clarity was just like, oh my gosh, like what have I been doing for the past six years? I feel so good right now. So I decided to take some time off of drinking. It wasn't like this giant, you know, I'm going to be sober for the rest of my life. It was no decision like that. I just decided to take some time off, but I did really miss wine. I missed the ritual of drinking wine, especially like while cooking or having dinner. And so I started looking into non-alcoholic wines online just as a consumer. And, you know, there were like maybe three or four brands on the market at the time. I tried. Well, okay. So first I went to the grocery store and to see what was there. And they had one brand there, one or two brands, and both of them were sold out. So I asked the manager, like, well, are you selling a lot of this stuff? And he was like, yeah, we can't keep it on the shelves. And I couldn't believe it. I was like, wow, there's other people that want this product. And there's only two brands. And I tried them both. They both didn't taste very good. I thought their branding was weak. And so I just thought, I don't know where I got the idea and the confidence, but I just thought I could do a better job of making my own brand. And, you know, as luck or serendipity would have it, I was laid off along with several other members of the marketing team from Hinge that December. So I was sort of at a crossroads and I decided, you know, it was either go get another job for, you know, a corporate like tech company doing something similar that I was doing at Hinge or you know, pursue this idea, this very loose idea that I had for a non-alcoholic 
product. And I just decided to go for the latter. I had a little bit of money that I had equity in Hinge, so I didn't have to go get another job right away. And yeah, I just decided to take a stab at it. And now here we are three years later, and we're coming out with two new varietals in December. And we're, you know, a bestseller in the white wine category on Amazon. So things are going great. That's amazing. First of all, congratulations. But also, I want to hear what was your decision process like? Because deciding not to go to a job when you're someone who's had a job and become a founder when you haven't been an entrepreneur, like what led you to that and what made you feel okay about it? At Like at what point? Because it's a really big decision, right? That's not how people lose their jobs and then they get new jobs. Most Mm -hmm. of the time, people don't lose their jobs and found something completely new in a category that isn't that developed. So I I really want to hear what your process was like. That's a really good question. And nobody's ever asked me that. So thanks for asking a new question. (laughs) I think there's a few factors at play here. One, this I've always been sort of entrepreneurial. This isn't my first foray into, I was a freelancer for a long time. So in a way that's being an entrepreneur, you know, you're in charge of your own income, you manage your own clients, all of that. So I was, when I was a journalist prior to Hinge, I was doing a lot of freelance work. So this wasn't like my first foray into entrepreneurship, but it was my first big foray into entrepreneurship. So that's definitely one thing. Aside from that, I think, you know, I think it just takes a certain type of personality to say, okay, I'm okay with risk taking. And like I mentioned before, I like to be transparent about this. It's not like I was going into this, you know, job with, you know, $900 in my bank account. I had made a significant amount of money from Hinge that allowed me to, you know, the not like a ton, but like, you know, enough that I didn't feel the financial stress or pressure to have to go immediately into making another salary. So that was definitely like a big part of it. And aside from that, I think my age was, you know, this is definitely something I thought about. And this isn't to say that you can't do this at any age, but I think I felt like I was at a sweet spot where I had had enough I think I was 31 when I started this. I had had enough, or 30, I had had enough experience working for someone else that I felt like I knew enough, but I wasn't tied down in any way. So I wasn't like married. I didn't have children. I could move anywhere. So I didn't have those, like, you know, those things that basically I was only taking care of myself. So it was like if everything failed, you know, my child wouldn't be starving or like, you know. (laughs) I think it was all of those. And then I thought, you know, if I'm ever going to take this big risk, now is kind of the time to do it. So yeah, I just weighed all those factors and went for it. (laughs) It's so cool. You know, you're the first person I've heard compare entrepreneurship to freelancing, but I think you're spot on because it's just a constant hustle freelance, right? I mean, I've done it too, as a writer as well. And it's just a constant hustle. And I think, I mean, no one's really ever comfortable with it, but not being unfamiliar with, it feels like a real bonus, right? Knowing how to do that and knowing that everything doesn't mean anything, right? Like you get a rejection, it doesn't mean anything. You get a job, but it doesn't mean anything. You stop taking things personally. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So like a no is just like, yeah, whatever. Although I will say during the fundraising process for this company, it was getting to me. I was really starting to feel super beat down and discouraged which I think probably most entrepreneurs go through at some point. And especially as like a first time company founder who had never done a fundraise before, that was really, really emotionally difficult for me. Do you want to talk a little bit about when you decided to raise money and how you did it and where you're at now? Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. So again, I didn't know anything about the costs of running a company like this when I first started. So I reached out to a friend of mine who I went to college with. She grew up in Napa and she had started a rosé brand with her husband. So she was able to walk me through like the very rudimentary, you know, basics and financials of running a company like this. I didn't know at the time like a ton about you know, owning and starting a company that produced a tangible product. I knew enough. I'd watched enough Shark Tank to know that you shouldn't put your own money into it if you can avoid it. My first thing that I did was I let everyone in my network know what I was doing. And this wasn't like a solicitation. It was literally just me emailing all my contacts and saying like, hey, I'm I'm starting this wine company, just letting you guys know in case you want updates, like let me know. So from that email, I did get a few people in my network that were interested, you know, asking if I was taking investment. So I said, yes, like I am. And through that process and then through social media also, I was able to connect with a few people and they ended up investing $117,000. So that was like the, the first chunk of money that I had to work with. And since then, I've gotten one other small investment. But other than that, this company has been totally bootstrapped. So, and not for lack of trying to get investment. I was trying really, really hard last year. It is such a blessing in disguise that I did not end up raising money because I think a lot of companies that I've, you know, I've now been in this world for about, you know, two, three years and well, two years. And I found that a lot of companies, especially people that aren't used to deploying capital are they get a ton of investment and then they just like waste it really fast. And I'm like, okay, I've had to do everything on my own because I didn't have that, you know, financial backing. And I've had to be really, really scrappy. Honestly, I think I wouldn't have used the funds correctly if I had had a big pile of money to play with. Now I think I would know what to do with it. But back then, no way. And I also love the fact that I'm not like beholden to, you know, like a VC firm or something, because I can still make all the decisions myself. Yeah. I've talked to a lot of people that say two things that you said. One is that they're happy that they didn't raise money because they don't have to. And then I've talked to people who have raised money that totally regret it, that are just like, Mm -hmm. I can't get out of this relationship now. And I have to answer to people who don't even understand what I'm trying to do. Yeah. And I think that's interesting. And now, as we all know, who are in this industry, the pendulum has swung the completely opposite way of pre-COVID where there was yeah. money everywhere and now there's money right. nowhere. And I think it's like the shakeout is real. Like a lot of brands aren't going to make it because probably they shouldn't, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It, it was too easy for a little while. And now it's now it might be a little too hard. But I think that the brands who survive it are the ones who have done the right things, made the right choices, been really careful, but also mm-hmm. taken risks where necessary. And I, I want to ask you about that because I've talked to a lot of people recently and I've read a lot of articles and about people saying, protect your cash at all costs at this Mm -hmm. moment in time. And then I, as a marketer, know that you can't always do that because you have to get the word out. You've got to sell product. You have to get your awareness going. So where are you on all of that? So the only place that I have spent money advertising is on Amazon. And that is because I had already proven out Amazon as a successful channel. Like I was selling on Amazon without advertising. So I thought, okay, if I double down on this and put some spend behind what I'm doing, I'm sure I'll be more successful. Aside from that, I haven't done any Instagram, Facebook posts. I haven't like promoted. 
I haven't done any paid spend on TikTok. That being said, I am getting to the point now where I am starting to explore that and realize that I want to experiment with that, figure out, you know, like what's my acquisition cost of a customer, all of those sorts of things. And then, you know, there's the cost that you don't necessarily think of at the beginning, like if you want to sample at an event or do, you know, like all of those are marketing costs that are sort of hidden. So I'm starting to get really serious about figuring out, okay, like this is exactly what I want my marketing budget to be based on the projections. I think it's really hard to do that when you first start a company because you have absolutely no idea how much product you're going to sell and how fast you're going to sell it. So it's like, how do you plan for a marketing budget when you have no idea how fast you're going to go through product. So it was a lot of trial and error at the beginning. Now I feel like I have a better handle on where the company is going and, you know, what sort of, you know, velocities I can do. So now I have an idea I can deploy correctly. If you haven't spent money on marketing to date with the exception of Amazon, where's your growth coming from? How fast have you been able to grow? All of my growth has come from organic social and word of mouth. So that's what I'm good at. I'm lucky that I'm good at that. So I started building the Buzzkill Instagram account like a year before I even had a product on the shelf. Okay. So I started getting people interested in the product just from our, you know, our social posts. And then same with TikTok. I made a big effort to connect personally with a lot of other people in the non-out community. And that's the one cool thing about this category is that there's sort of like a core group of people who have been in this, doing this non-out thing from the beginning. And that includes like brands, influencers, stores, and all of us talk to each other. So I've had just such amazing luck, like making friendships with people that I wouldn't even consider like a transactional friendship. I would consider them actual friendships and we all want to help each other out and, you know, grow together. So I've had a ton of, you know, just awesome, awesome experience with that. And then in addition to that, I think my branding, I have the current branding and then we're actually, we just went through a rebrand, but both versions of the branding are very bold and people Mm -hmm. have been really excited to share the brand on their own socials. Just like, oh, look at this cool can or whatever. And I think that's been a big thing as well. Just, it's not like a boring looking product. So that's been really helpful as well. So interesting that, I mean, it's amazing how much you've done with so little I mean, I've heard a lot of people also say that just in general, the CPG, I call it the health and wellness and startup community is very supportive of each other. Yes. Which is incredibly different than obviously all the big brands that Mm -hmm. we talk about where they're really just fighting to steal share from each other. This feels like a lot better community than that. Talk about the experience with who are you selling to? Are you selling to people who have just completely given up drinking? Like, is it a mix? I'm curious to know how you've done And is it similar to what what your experience was? So it's definitely a mix. There is a piece of data that I always like to share. It's that 80% of people who drink and purchase non-alc drinks still drink alcohol. Mm -hmm. So it's definitely, people always assume that the main consumer of a non-alc brand would be someone who's totally sober. And that's not the case at all. It's In my experience, and then, you know, I actually spent all of December, of last December, interviewing, like literally having phone calls with actual customers to just talk to them about like, who are you? Like, what's your lifestyle? Why are you drinking this? And what I found is that it's a lot of people 
who just for whatever reason have found that alcohol is creating some sort of barrier in their life to the type of life that they want to live. So whether that's, you know, they have athletic goals they want to meet, they're mm-hmm. a parent who doesn't want to be hungover in the morning because they are dealing with toddlers. They are a college student who, you know, prefers cannabis over alcohol. Like mm-hmm. there's so many reasons that people would be interested in this product. So in general, I would say that my customer is not necessarily like vehemently against alcohol or mm-hmm. sober. They just are like, you know what, this isn't working for my lifestyle anymore. So I want to do a full replacement and go totally alcohol free or, you know, just mix it in once in a while. Mm-hmm. Interesting. It's hard targeting though, right? Uh, not really. Do you mean in terms of like advertising? Yeah. No, not, I wouldn't say it's hard targeting because I always like to look, and I was like this at Hinge too, when I was looking at what partnerships I wanted to do. Yeah. I look at other products that I have an innate sense. I can't tell you where it comes from, but I have an innate sense of what other products and brands my customers are interested in. And I just go after those same customers. Interesting. Yeah. It's not very scientific, but it's a little scientific. Yeah. I always got in trouble, but I always got a hard time from like my CMO and like other people at Hinge. They'd be like, well, how do you know that? Like, give us some data points. And I'm like, I don't know how I know that. I just feel it. (laughs) That's amazing. It's amazing because so many people are consumed by data points. And I think I suspect there's some balance at some point. And as you grow, right, you'll obviously have to think about it a little bit differently. And as you start to have to make decisions like, where am I actually going to spend this money? That will be a little different. But it's interesting that you are doing a lot of it on your gut, which seems to be working for you. Yeah. And I mean, there's definitely like a mix. Like, okay, for example, all non-alk wines um, are a little bit on the pricier side. So my product on Amazon is $24.99 for four cans. That's an expensive product. Like I'm, you know, there's no getting around that. So, you know, I think we can say, okay, I'm gonna, because of the price point, I know that the people who are spending that money, especially in this economy, are probably not price sensitive. Yep. So, yep. you know, I can then look at other brands and say, like, okay, where else are they shopping that's not price sensitive? Well, probably somebody who's a fan of like, or you know, shopping for products on Goop or you yep. know, like Target yep. versus Walmart, like those yep. types of things. So. Those are just like the little like small data points that I'm pulling out. But then in addition to that, every time I've done a tasting, I can see what type of customer is gravitating towards the product and wants to try it. I have a trendy customer. That's all I can say. (laughs) Yeah. And there's a big movement happening right now. I mean, there's a lot Mm -hmm. of conversation around lower alcohol or no alcohol or sober curious, whatever the movement is called. There is definitely conversation. It's cool though. Because you're a marketer, right? So you're marketing and you know what you're doing and you have good instincts around that. How did you figure out how to make the product? And what, oh my God, what, a, the what a great question. And how to make yeah. a quality product. Like you you talk about your wine like wine, right? It's yeah, wine. it yeah. is wine. Yeah, so it's, it's wine. We just take the alcohol out. Yep. So that is such a great question. And I, I want to answer this by saying that it is not just about the wine. When I started this project, I was like, where do you get cans? Like, how does the can get from here to like, I didn't understand how any of this stuff worked because I've never worked in operations or physical products. So I had no idea how any of this worked. The way I learned was just from watching Laura, who was my old classmate at BU who has the the Rosé brand. I watched her 
literally I was like CC'd on emails and I was like, okay, so you have to get the can from this place. You have to get the box from this place. You have to connect these two people to talk to each other. And it was literally just like trial and error. But, you know, after going through that whole process and, you know, now I've been running that whole thing myself, there needs to be a resource somewhere for CPG, first time CPG founders who have never done this because even the language that people use is like completely foreign to someone like me. People were using abbreviations and terms that I had never heard of. They were like, oh, like like a bill of lading. I'm like, what is that? You know, like I have no idea. And I'm literally Googling terms. So, you know, it's just all of these, you know, components that you just kind of have to sit on the sidelines and learn by watching. That's incredible. It's incredible that you did it that way. And then talk about the winemaking process. Like, are you involved in that? How did you decide what to do on that front? Yeah. So Laura actually introduced me to a winemaker in Napa. Her name is Evan. And fun fact, Evan also went to Boston University with us. So like (laughs) the three of us all went to BU. But Evan is an unbelievable winemaker. She's worked at some of the best wineries in Napa. This is her first non-alc project. And I think this was, it was like a fun challenge for her because it's a totally different process making non-alc wine. And, you know, I don't know, I can't say with authority what the other competitor brands are doing in terms of creating these products, but I, their products, but I do know there's one facility that everybody uses in Northern California to de-alc their products. And they have their own team of like food scientists and people on staff there that are kind of the, they're the ones creating the product, not an out of house winemaker. So like, I think we're one of the only wine companies that is like bringing in our own winemaker to create the product. And then we also get all of our juice, our grapes from one source. So that's also very uncommon that you would be using grapes from one vineyard. Most companies are buying wine on the bulk market, so it could come from anywhere. Yep. That's so interesting. Talk about the biggest challenges. I mean, you've done something really incredible. So you went into a category that was under, not developed yet, right? Yeah. You had an instinct. You were like, I feel this way. There must be other people that feel this way. You had a situation that left you thinking, what am I going to do next? So all those things happened. You made some really interesting choices and it's, it seems to have caught on and it's going Mm -hmm. well. What about the challenges? The biggest challenge for me has been maintaining like mental sanity through this whole thing. It's super hard. As we were talking about, freelancing is one thing, right? Like you're in charge of yourself and there's not that many factors that are out of your control. It's a little bit, it's, I don't want to say it's easy to manage, but it's, in my opinion, it's easy. It's a lot easier to manage than this. So for me, it was the, the mental stress of like dealing with the financial aspect of this business. So everything from like making sure you're doing everything in a compliant way. Then when you take on investors, you need a lawyer. And then, you know, a lawyer, you need to figure out how are you going to pay the lawyer? And then you take investors, you need to be compliant with SEC rules. And these are things that would like keep me up at night and freak me out, to be totally honest. then there's the whole other part of it. Like, okay, I have to pay this vendor. Am I going to be able to pay them on time? 
okay, I thought that we we're going to get this result, but we got th- this other result. How am I going to communicate that to the people on you know, my team and to the investors? So just like the personal mental load has been really, really hard. It's gotten a lot easier, but I think being a solo founder with like nobody to talk to you about it has been really, really hard because my parents are not entrepreneurs. My friends don't have businesses like this. So for me, it's really been relying on a people I've met on LinkedIn and Slack. So just other founders and talking to them about their experiences. But the weird thing about that is that very few people I've found in this space are willing to be vulnerable and actually talk about the challenges because they don't want to appear weak because you never yeah. know who's like reading your posts or exactly who. And like... I get it. But for me, I'm just, I've kind of thrown that mentality out the window because I just, I need like the support. So I found that for me, it's been better to just be honest about everything. And what kind of reaction are you getting from people? I've had this conversation with other people. I want to hear how you feel about or have people done what you wish they would do, which has been supportive or have they made you feel like you're putting yourself out there? You're saying, I don't know what I'm doing all the time. Someone help me. How, what's the reaction been? I would say it's been almost 100% a positive reaction. People Mm -hmm. messaging me and saying like, thank you for putting this out there. I feel exactly the same way. And it's so funny because most people that you think are running these like big, fabulous companies, they're, whether they're, you know, a multi-million dollar company or a company that's made no sales, they're going through something. So there's stress there. And I just have found that there's actually like a lot of strength in being vulnerable and people respect you for it. Maybe I've lost, you know, a few, I don't know, potential investors or whatever, because I put my weaknesses out in the forefront. But I mean, honestly, like, I don't want to work with someone that isn't going to support me in that way. That's amazing. It's really important for people to hear because I will, I think I told you this when we, we had our first conversation, this podcast, the ones that are the most engaging for people are the ones where people are vulnerable and they tell the truth and they say, look, there's, there's a lot of great things about it, but it's not easy. And I'll share my story with you because people are also, yeah, as you said, everyone's going through something. Mm-hmm. Everyone has a story and everyone is struggling in their own way. And so being able to put it out there and support each other just makes you human. It doesn't make you weak, right? It just makes yeah. you just like everyone else. And and, and you yeah. know what? Like I've gotten so many messages on LinkedIn and Instagram from people saying, oh, I've really enjoyed reading about and watching your journey unfold. And I think that people would be rolling their eyes at me and saying like, yeah, whatever, and not really caring about my brand as much if all I did was put out the wins. But I think the fact I've been like, yeah, this is hard or like, yeah, I don't have any money right now, or I'm having mental breakdown or whatever it is. When I do then have a win and put it out on social media or LinkedIn, whatever, people are like, yeah, like, that's awesome. Like, okay, cool. So she got out of this, you know, rut. I guess I can too. Yep. Yep. I think that's really important. Talk about raising capital because I think it's really, obviously it's hard in general. It's hard when you're young. It's hard when you're in a new category. And I have found from all these conversations that it's really hard for women. Yes, it is very hard for women. And I am not, I want to put this out there too. I'm not someone who likes to victimize myself and say like, oh, it's because of this and blah, 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 blah. The reality is, is that the capital 
game is a, it's a boys club. Like that's just the way it is. I don't think that men are intentionally not investing in women entrepreneurs. I think that people as a species want to invest in people that are like them. So Mm -hmm. when like a bro who like played lacrosse at an Ivy league school sees another bro who played lacrosse at an Ivy league school, he's looking at that guy and saying, Oh, I get this guy. Like all, all, I trust him with my money. I'll invest in him. Yeah. And there's just not that many female like angel investors, for example, or people on the venture capital side. So I think if there were, I'd probably be having an easier time in that respect. But it just happens to be that most of the people, you know, pulling their wallets out are men. It's a challenging thing. And if you've never done it, you don't know how to do it. So, for example, it's really hard to find an example of a pitch deck that, you know, is like a first timers pitch deck. Like, hey, I have made no sales. Like, what do you put in a pitch deck if you've made no sales? I had no idea. So it was literally just me combing through Google and asking people a million questions. I've gone through so many versions of my investment decks. Yeah. And I look back at the first one now and I'm like, well, this was like not good at all. But, you know, again, it's an evolution. You learn as you go. Again, you get a lot of really hard questions too. Like people in some of these pitch meetings that I was doing with angel groups were like, asking me questions that I had no clue what the answer was. I didn't even know what the question meant. So for me sitting there, you're you're kind of just like not trying to look stupid and bluff your way through the question. And it was hard. So I think Is that that's where a lot of the stress came from for you. Like when you talked before and you said it took a toll on you. I don't know if you yeah. said mental or not, but is that where it came from? Yes. A lot of it did come from that. I also had no, I had no concept of like how much money do I need to maintain this business? So when I'm asking an investor for like a million dollars or whatever I'm asking for, and then they're like, well, how are you going to use it? And I don't have a detailed profit and loss statement or like any sort of financial projections. And I don't have enough data under my belt to answer that question properly. I have no idea where to go with that question. I don't even know if I need a million dollars. So luckily I didn't get a million dollars and I've had to make do with what I have and what, you know, just basically bootstrapping this business. And you realize that you can actually run a business on a much smaller budget than you think you can. And I got one piece of advice from someone that it's probably one of the most invaluable piece, pieces of advice I've gotten through this whole thing, which was when you're starting out, don't worry. Cause everyone always talks about runway and like how much, mm-hmm. how much money do you have to continue and blah, blah, blah. This one woman said to me, don't worry about the next six months from now. Don't, don't worry about a year from now. Don't even worry about three months from now. Worry about next month. Can you keep the lights on for one more month? So wow. when I stopped thinking about six months from now, a year from now, and just thought, okay, am I good for the next month? That was when everything changed for me, like mindset wise. That's an amazing piece of advice that no one out of my over a hundred interviews has given. (laughs) So yeah, it was mind blowing to me because it was like, I was wasting so much energy, like okay, well, how am I going to pay this vendor in six months? Or how am I going to pay my rent next month? And, or how am I going to pay my rent next year? And it's like, who cares? Don't worry about it right now. Right now, just worry about next month. That's awesome. I guess you can do that until you have 
private equity people or investors. Well, that's another reason that I'm right? glad I don't yeah. have them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Because once you do that, that answer probably won't won't be good enough for them. But what I found out though is that it, you know, when I took that piece of advice, which was over a year ago, it made it easy. It like naturally my business decisions became more about the now and mm-hmm. less about potentials. And then naturally my business started to grow and it made it easier to pr- be able to project like three months yeah. from now, six months from now. What is you had history, right? Then you had also, aside from the fact that you you had time, right? So you know what happened yes. over a period of time instead of at the beginning where you were like, I don't know, I'm start, I have no idea what's going to happen next month because I don't even yeah. have the last three months. And yeah, that was another thing that was hard when I was in those investor meetings is I would get those questions all the time. Like, well, what's the plan for like six months from now, a year from now, five years from now? I'm like thinking to myself, like, buddy, I don't even know what's happening, you know, a week from now. So yeah. you to ask me what my five-year plan is with this company when I've only sold like $50,000 worth of product, I mm-hmm. have no idea. You know, I'm in a Slack group that it's just a bunch of CPG founders and lo- there's lots of questions floating around there from first time, not even first time founders, like any type of founder that's starting a new business. And they're always asking these like big questions like, well, you know, like how do I answer this from an investor or how much capital should I raise? And I'm like, if you can avoid raising any capital, avoid, avoid it. it. Yeah. I've you know, because you don't want to deal with, you can't answer a lot of the questions that big investors yeah. want you to have answers to right at the beginning. Yep. Yep. It's so interesting. It's such mm-hmm. good advice. I want to be respectful of your time, but I want you to say, I mean, I think it's incredible what you're doing and I don't want to know what your plan is, but what's your vision? Where do you want to be with this brand next year in a couple mm-hmm. of years? Now I can answer this question. I wouldn't have been able to answer that question last year. Definitely. I want to keep building the brand, keep the team as lean as possible, do as much as I can with a small group of people who really believe in the company and eventually get this company acquired by a larger wine company or a wine and spirits company, something along those lines. Maybe even, you know, it's non-elk. So maybe even a non-wine company. So, Mm -hmm. you know, you never know. But I think that Athletic Brewing has really done a great job of taking that space in beer. And that's the space that I want to take in wine. Yeah, The fact that we're a very bold brand in a can, I think plays in our favor. Canned wine is, it's just become such a, like a cool thing that I think is becoming more and more accepted. And especially with non-elk, sometimes you're the only person drinking non-elk. So you don't want to open a whole bottle. And I see the can thing becoming more of a trend as well. But yeah, I just, I want to keep growing. And then eventually, you know, I have so much fun with the branding and like community building aspect of this, which I think is an area that a lot of CPG companies and non-out companies too kind of struggle with and they don't put put enough energy into it. And I just love having that like online community and keeping that growing. So like when I make like the next big full-time hire that I make, I probably want to hire somebody to create content. Yeah. Interesting. That's awesome. So before we go, I want to know, I mean, you gave probably the best piece of advice I've heard in a long, long time. I really, I mean it because I think it's, and it's not just for CPG people. Like it's for everyone who has a company, like you are so anxious to grow Mm -hmm. and hire and have a team, but it's expensive and avoiding, like, it sounds like you made a lot of decisions to avoid that 
from an investment perspective, from a hiring perspective, and it served you well. It's hard. Yeah. But it's also really important because it lets you think month to month for a little while while you have to, instead mm-hmm. of thinking about how am I going to pay my whole team for the next year? They are on, right? That's a different, it's a different feeling. And so I think that's a really good piece of advice. Anything else you want to share um, with people who are either starting brands, have started brands that are struggling? I have a few pieces of advice. I think expanding on the the thing about just worry about the next month, I would say, um, what was I going to say? I just lost my train of thought. I think a lot of companies get in trouble. You know, I don't want to pin this all on men, but I see men doing it a lot where they do things like hire a lot of people or get a cool office space or like do all these things that make them feel like a big company. Mm-hmm. And that's where they get in trouble. Their energy and their thoughts go off of the most important thing, which is selling your product. Yeah. It's like, just worry about selling your product. And I think people forget about that a lot. And it's like, even if you're literally going out to like the farmer's market every single weekend, if you're building a loyal customer base, just do it that way or go online and like build an online customer base. Like don't worry about hiring some top operations person or, you know, raising $2 million in capital. Just sell your product and grow steadily. You'll be happier that you did it that way. And then the other thing I want to say that I, I impart on a lot of people is I knew when I left Hinge that I never wanted to have that type of unhealthy work-life balance ever again. I mean, I was working like a gazillion hours a week, burning the candle at both ends. And I refused to do that, which I think is very against like startup grind culture. Like people hear you have your own business and they expect you to be doing like a hundred hours a week of work. Yep. Yeah, I'm thinking about my business a lot and probably most of the time, but I am really strict about like I do not let it infringe on my like personal time. So I always, you know, I make time to work out, I make time to see my friends, I, you know, try not to do too much stuff on weekends. Like all of that has helped me be present and be fully committed when I am plugged in. So Another yeah. piece of advice that you don't hear very often, because I think the assumption is what you said initially, like you expect founders and entrepreneurs to work nonstop round the clock and be all consumed by it until they can breathe. But that also makes you not be able to breathe for, right? It, it, you burn out way faster. Yeah. I mean, if I ever took venture capital money and somebody giving me a check was like, well, I expect you to be working 80 hours a week. I'd be like, kick rocks and keep your check. Yep. Yep. You know, it's just not, it's not the life I want to live. I mean, I don't think it's a life anyone really wants to live, right? It's just the life we think we have to live sometimes. Yeah. But more people need to, and I think Gen Z is a really good example of this. More people need to stand up and say, I don't want to live that kind of life. Like we aren't living in the times of the, you know, Ford assembly line. Like we don't need to be living this crazy thing where your entire life revolves around work. So you know, make your own rules, set your own boundaries. And, you know, if you own a company, you should be empowered to run it the way you want. I do the same thing with all the people I work with. Most of my people that I work with have kids and they'll say, oh, I have to, I'm so sorry. I have to take my kid to the doctor or pick my kid up from school. I'm like, don't even worry. Like why? This is, we're talking about non-alcoholic wine and you're talking about your sick kid. Obviously worry about your kid. Yeah. Yeah. The world's not going to burn. I think it's hard. And I think for women, it's even, I mean, I don't want to get on a woman thing either, but I think it's hard because you feel guilty, Mm -hmm. right? You automatically feel guilty about everything. 
Mm-hmm. I have to do this and that, and that's not my job. And so my job is really important. And I don't want anyone to think that I'm not focused on my job, right? You have all mm-hmm. these things in your head that don't even make sense. No, they don't. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, they absolutely don't. And I I felt that way constantly at Hinge. And I never, ever want to make someone else feel that way. Interesting. Well, I'm thrilled to hear you saying things like that because I think people need to hear it. And I think people need to know, not just hear it, but know that you can do it. Like mm-hmm. you're running a successful company and you're growing and you and you have that point of view. It, and so you're doing it. It's not like you're saying, this is how I want it to be. I have no idea if it's going to work or not. You already mm-hmm. are doing it. And yeah. I think that's the difference. Yeah. That's really, yeah. and it must be nice to work with you as well as a partner or an employee because you already have that point of view. Well, I really hope so. That's one of my top things that I take pride in, especially as I look into growing the company and hiring people. Yeah, I want people to know that, first of all, I'm very mindful of the fact that this is my company and no one else will ever care about this company as much as I care about this company. And I think that's a problem with startup founders is they expect their employees to act like they have 100% ownership of the company. Guess what? These people have lives outside of your company. So- I would never expect that of an employee. It's a job. And yes, do I want you to be excited and passionate about it? Of course. But I also want you to be excited and passionate about your family, your friends, your hobbies, like all life should be balanced. Yeah. You're going to get a lot of people calling you for jobs after this interview, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, wait, wait a few months until I actually have money to hire you. (laughs) Yeah, that's awesome. Anything else you want to add before we wrap up that you wanted to say? I think we've covered it all. You had really good questions. Thank you. I love your brand so much. I love what you're doing and your philosophy is awesome. I think you've given the best advice. I can't wait to get this out. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. This was fun. Thank you for listening to The Irresistible Factor. I'm Christy Bridges, and I can't wait to see you next Wednesday.